Jonah chapter 1, and, and let's go ahead and read through this chapter, and then we'll kind of jump into where we're headed today. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it, you, as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The word of the Lord. So I want to play a little, play off what Justin was talking about just a little bit. Have you ever experienced a moment in your life where it was clear that the Lord was calling you to do something. Like you, you knew exactly what it was that God was calling you to do. Maybe it was in a conversation. Uh, maybe it was a situation like what Justin was mentioning. Um, maybe you saw a person in need. Maybe you realized there was some form of grace or forgiveness that you could extend to another person. And you recognized that God was calling you to do it. You, you knew it. Like there was no question. But... Rather than sort of venturing into the uncomfortable unknown of trusting God, you chose instead to suppress his voice or suppress the urge that you felt. And instead, you just tried to move on with your life, assuming that if you could just press on and ignore God's leading, that it would ultimately go away, that it would ultimately subside. 
Chances are, if you've been following God for some time, that experience has happened to you more than once. That sense of recognizing that still small voice of God calling you, pushing you, prodding you, the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Rarely does God choose what we would consider to be opportune times because so often his agenda and our agenda just are not synced in any way, shape, or form, right? We're doing our own thing. He's doing his thing. And then he calls us graciously and generously into his thing. And yet it seems like such an inconvenience, doesn't it? It seems like such a hassle. Sometimes it seems scary. Sometimes it seems as if there could be harm that could come to me if I actually do this stuff that God's calling me to do. But at the very least, usually it's inopportune. I've got something else happening. I'm going somewhere else. My agenda is different. And the reason, the reason for that is not because God's timing is bad. It's because most of us have not cultivated lives where we're expectantly waiting for God to lead us. Let me say that again. Most of us, I would venture, because I would include myself in this, we haven't cultivated lives where we are expectantly waiting for God to lead us. Instead, we lead us. What do I think is best? What does my experience tell me? What do I want We've left no margin for him. Instead, we push on with our agenda, and, and then we're bothered when God like throws a wrench in our carefully laid plans. But many of us have learned to suppress it, and we've gotten to the point where maybe I'll feel a little bit bad about it, but I'm just going to keep on trucking, doing what I want. And this is why Jonah is such a great book. I know Jonah because I am Jonah. I know God, I often recognize his voice or his leading, and and just as often I go, I don't want to do that. I don't have time for that. I have more important things to do, and so I press on as if I've heard nothing. But what if that wasn't how we lived our lives in relationship to God? What if we were ready and like waiting and expectantly preparing for him when he called You know, Jonah is fascinating because he knows God, he hears God, he fully understands the details of God's call, and yet he foolishly thinks he can, like, physically run away from God. I don't know if you notice, but a lot of people point this out, like, symbolically in the text, and it kind of uses this language. As soon as Jonah decides, I'm not going to do what God wants, and I'm going to try to physically run away from him, he makes this like, like literal physical descent. Like it says in verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and so he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. He went down into the ship to go with them away from the presence of the Lord. It repeats Tarshish many times because it wants to emphasize that he's not doing what God wants, right? He's trying to go somewhere else entirely. And so he goes down to the port, he goes down into the ship, and at the end of our text, he goes down into the ocean and then ultimately down into the belly of the fish. And so he makes this literal, physical, but also spiritual descent at the same time. And so this illuminates our first principle today, which is, 
this, um, and I think we have it up here on the screen. Disobedience opens a rabbit hole. Disobedience opens a rabbit hole. And what I mean by that is this. So often, disobedience to God doesn't, it's not just like a one-time thing in that one act of disobedience typically leads us to another act of disobedience and another and another and another. And thus is the case with Jonah. Now, disobedience to God is in and of itself sin, it's also just foolish behavior. It also begets foolish behavior. And this is what we see with Jonah. One initial foolish decision to not follow God's will ultimately leads to like a series of foolish decisions. But who is Jonah? Who is this guy? Because this is the only place in the Bible we read about him, right? Wrong. Jonah is also mentioned in the book of 2 Kings chapter 14. And here's what we learn about him. We've got it up here on the screen. Jonah, uh, here in 2 Kings 14, we, we learn that it's the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, um, and Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, um, comes to the throne. He begins to reign in Samaria, which was sort of the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. Then the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. For there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said what he, that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So this actually tells us a lot. Jonah was a prophet who lived in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of Jeroboam II. So as we pick up in our study of the prophets, we are picking up, as we've talked about in recent weeks, in the divided kingdom, right? Israel has now split into, you have the northern kingdom, which is still called Israel, and where most of the original Hebrew tribes now live. And then you have the southern kingdom of Judah, which is where the tribe of Judah is. It's where Jerusalem is. But Jonah is a prophet in the north. He's a prophet to Israel. And we learn that he is a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II. Now, if you remember from a few weeks ago, this is not Jeroboam, the first king of Israel. This is Jeroboam number two. And he's actually the 13th king of Israel during the era of the divided kingdom. So we're picking up now about 200 years into the divided kingdom existing and if you remember, the primary outside aggressor during the divided kingdom was the Assyrians. And the Assyrians had slowly been eating away at Israel's territory. They were capturing a city here, a piece of land over here. Uh, but Jonah had prophesied that Jeroboam would actually expand the territory of Israel back to the boundaries that it had had during the time of David and Solomon. And this is what happened. Verse 25 in 2 Kings, he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which God spoke through his prophet Jonah. 
So Jonah passes the Old Testament standard for a prophet in that his prophecy comes to pass. The things that he said would happen, happen. But as we will see later, Jonah is not the only prophet who's active during this very specific time period, the reign of Jeroboam II. We will also learn that Hosea and Amos were also prophets of the Lord during that exact same time period. The book of Jonah, though, that we read chapter 1 from this morning, it doesn't tell us much of anything about this time period that we're reading about here in 2 Kings. And in many ways, it is a strange book, especially when you consider it among the other minor prophets, primarily because it is not a book of prophecy. Like, we're not necessarily reading about a great deal of prophecy that the Lord, like, gives to Jonah in the book of Jonah. No, no, no. It's very different than a lot of what we will see in this study. Um, I've heard some people describe Jonah as a sort of graphic novel within the scheme of the Bible. It is very short. It's vivid. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of drama. And yet, at the same time, it's a very human book. Because I think it's actually very easy for us to relate to Jonah. A little bit of background here. While we have a very clear understanding of when Jonah lived, and the Bible's very specific on it, right? He's, he's doing this during the reign of Jeroboam II. We know the reign of Jeroboam II was from 782 to 753 BC. Like, we know exactly when he was king. But the best estimates put authorship of the book of Jonah sometime between the 8th century before Christ and the 3rd century before Christ. So like a 500-year period in which the book of Jonah could have been written. And that's somewhat true for many of the minor prophets. And the reason why is because they weren't authors. They weren't like writing books of prophecy. They were publicly declaring the word of the Lord. And so more than likely, in fact, we can pretty confidently say Jonah is not the author of the book that bears his name, and it probably came well after his lifetime, and it was the result of oral tradition concerning him that was sort of handed down from generation to generation. This interesting thing happens with the prophets because many of them are not popular in their lifetime. Like, they're not lauded and celebrated and appreciated because so many of them bring, like, a word of warning to the people. They tell the people, you need to change, you need to repent, or some of them bring a word of curse. And some of them are just so bold and brash that they're just, like, they're abrasive and people are put off by them. And so many of them don't enjoy, like, notoriety or prominence or certainly anything we would consider, like, fame in their lifetime. And I was thinking about it, it's very similar to like American presidents in that there are American presidents who, who might not have been super popular during their actual time in office, but later on they become more celebrated historically. It's so true for many of the prophets, they came declaring the word of the Lord and the people just didn't want to listen to them. But later on it becomes clear as the people look back in hindsight, oh, they were right. Like they were on the right side of history, you might say. And so their popular favor increases. Abraham Lincoln is an example of this, right? He did things in office that people hated. I mean, he's ultimately assassinated. 
And, and, and yet, you know, because of the things he did when he was office, in office, the things that caused people to hate him, like signing the Emancipation Proclamation and being on the right side of history as it related to things like slavery, he's now considered one of our greatest presidents. And biographies of Lincoln are like bestsellers constantly. Isn't that fascinating? This guy that lived many, 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 many years ago, who... who we have no clue, really, like contextually, what it must have been like to live when he was president. And yet today, man, people are fascinated by him. So, so a very similar thing happens with many of the prophets hundreds of years later, is the general public sees them for who they actually were, which was men who were able to declare the word of the Lord, and they become more celebrated. So, so we get to Jesus later on, and, and Jesus, as we will see in our study, will talk about Jonah. Jesus will bring him up, and it's because he became a well-known cultural figure. So before we wrap up today, I want to consider um, the overarching details of what God calls Jonah to do and what Jonah actually does. Let's look at verse 1 of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. That's what happens for prophets. God's word comes to them. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, and he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So Nineveh is the capital city of the enemy. It's the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Um, Nineveh is north of modern-day Baghdad. So we're talking about a part of the world we still talk about a lot today, Iraq, uh, southern Turkey, that's the region that we're talking about, which, which, by the way, is not all that far from what uh, historically was called the land of Ur, which is where Abraham ultimately moved from to go to the promised land of Canaan. Now, historically, while Israel, uh, Assyria would ultimately conquer and destroy Israel, at this particular point in time, when Jeroboam II is king, it's a period of relative peace. And it's why Jeroboam, as we read, has been able to extend the borders of Israel back to what they were during the time of David and Solomon. And, and there's two big reasons why there's some, some semblance of peace at this point in time. One is that Assyria is engaged in a number of other conflicts with other nations outside of Israel, and that's consuming a lot of their focus at the moment. But then also there was a famine throughout the land, and it made waging extended battles extremely difficult. So even though Israel and Assyria are certainly not friends at this point in time, um, it's also not like a season of active war between the two. Jonah, however, is not interested in what God wants him to do. He's not interested in speaking against Assyria. He, he's not interested in declaring the word of the Lord to them. And, and not for the reasons you might expect, Jonah's issue is, as we will see, not that, it's not, that he doesn't, it's not that he's afraid of them. It's not that he's in fear that he might lose his life. His, his primary problem is that God cares about Nineveh at all. His primary issue is that God would have any desire to see them change and repent. Or that God would do anything other than just wipe them off the map. Because of the horrible, violent, atrocious things that they have done to Israel. 
Jonah knows about all of this. He, he, he knows about all of these horrific things that have happened. So in his judgment, they are deserving of nothing other than death. But because he knows the power of God, he knows that God is fully capable of turning the people to repentance. He doesn't want any part of that. He doesn't want to be a player in that equation, right? Jonah has no desire to be the guy who goes to Nineveh, declares the word of the Lord, and they all turn to God and follow him. To Jonah, that sounds like death because of who these people are, because of his hatred for them. He doesn't want them to be saved from destruction. One writer says that the story of Jonah is all about God's boundless compassion, not just for us, meaning Jonah and the Israelites, but also for them, the pagan sailors in the story, the Ninevites. Even though it's clear from our text, it tells us that the Assyrians are evil, so are the Israelites. So are the Israelites. What did we read in 2 Kings about Jeroboam? This is 2 Kings 14.24. And, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, meaning the first Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. This means that the second Jeroboam continued the worship of pagan gods in the land of Israel that had been started way back 200 years before by the first Jeroboam. So the story is not that God chose an obedient prophet from among a righteous people to go to the unrighteous, evil people of Nineveh. No, no, no. The story is that everyone is unrighteous and disobedient and deserving of punishment, even and perhaps especially the one guy who actually knows and hears from the Lord. Friends, we live in an age of us and them, of polarization, left and right, where every polarized camp is trying to paint themselves as the good guys and, and the other folks as the bad guys. And, and much of this polarization, I think, has to do with the rapid pace of technological innovation in our world today, um, the massive, unprecedented cultural shifting that is happening, that we're experiencing. It's, it's truly disorienting. I've heard psychologists talk about the fact that we, and, and we've maybe mentioned this before, but, but we're suddenly experiencing such rapid cultural shift in our world today that things that we've never had to think about before, and certainly things our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation has never had to think about before or consider or make a decision on or have a position on, like suddenly things that have never been things are now things. And a lot of it is due to the rapid expansion of technology. Like if you had told me back in 2005 in my apartment in Ruston, Louisiana, that when I joined Facebook for the first time, because it was suddenly available to, I think, my student email address or something like back then, that that, 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 that stupid website would be like a player on the like geopolitical like scale of things in just a few years? Like, what? Like, I'm just getting on here to see who's dating who, right? And look at what has happened in, in, in like an, I mean, overnight. Like, we live in a world today where things like gender reassignment surgery, which not long ago 
not only didn't exist, but like wasn't even in the realm of human possibility. Where, where something like that can be engaged, like going to the dentist. Like that's massive overnight cultural shifting. And not only that things like that are available, but that they're celebrated. And so what a lot of psychologists think is that we all live in sort of this constant state of fatigue, like mental fatigue. Like not only are we dealing with like maybe some of the anxiety and stress or depression that comes from the effects of social media in our world today, but many of us are dealing with the repercussions of the massive cultural shift that we're experiencing because we're having to suddenly make decisions about what we think about all of these things that not long ago didn't exist at all. And so what psychologists think is that this pushes people into the polarities. It, it pushes people either to the left or to the right. It, pu- it pushes people like into the extremes. Because when you go all the way to the left or all the way to the right, and you find a camp of people and, and you find that all of your decisions can kind of be made for you. Right? You find people who can tell you what to think about all of these things. I don't have to research. I don't have to consider, is it moral? Is it immoral? I don't have to think a lot about it. I can just go over here and be told it's wrong or it's good or it's great or it's terrible. And and I can just kind of camp out there and, and then lob bombs at the other side because we're right and they're wrong. Then I don't have to wrestle with the hard questions of life, and I don't have to wrestle with cultural change, and then I can just look at the other camp, and I can feel self-righteous. But the reality of Jonah is still true today. We are all evil, and we all fall short of God's glory. We are all desperately in need of God's grace. And so here is our second principle this morning. The notion that we would ever look at any other group of people, no matter what they think or do or what they look like, and see them as people that God shouldn't or doesn't care about, is to completely miss the fact that God shouldn't care about us. Right? Because Jonah is, is over here in his, in his Israelite camp, looking at these horrible, violent, pagan people of Nineveh, going, God should not care about them. If God should do anything concerning them, it should be to destroy them completely. And part of what I think it's revealing to us is that we can't make the same mistake. Because it is only through the grace that God has shown us through Christ that any of us have any hope or any future. And yet in this story, God literally cares about everyone. He cares about Jonah. He cares about Israel. He cares about Nineveh. He even cares about the pagan sailors that Jonah finds himself with. And and, and to some extent, they really are the main character here in chapter 1. Jonah gets on this boat, and these guys, these guys don't know what's going on. Like, this storm comes out of nowhere, and they're just doing what pagans do. Like, they're all crying out to their fake gods. They cast lots, and, and 
(laughs) Surprise, surprise, the lot falls on Jonah. It's this guy's fault. The guy who, for some reason, is like sleeping down in the belly of the boat. And Jonah, like you read this, and he seems so nonchalant, like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm Jonah. I fear the Lord. (laughs) No, you don't. You're, You're running away from the Lord, which he tells them. He doesn't hide it. Well, how do we, what do we do? Like, why is God doing this? And you know what? Just throw me into the sea. And, and, and it sounds almost comical, but that's, that's the point that he's at. He would, he would rather die than do what God has called him to do. He would rather die. He would rather die than be the one who brings the word of the Lord to the evil Assyrians. And so if you think about it, the irony here is that the pagan sailors seem to be the only ones who truly fear the Lord in this chapter. The storm isn't about them. God's not after them, even though they've cried out to their false gods. They're just doing what pagans do. No, it's for the one who should know better. That's what all this hubbub's about. That's so similar to Jesus. It's, it's like we don't see Jesus really being angry with pagans because they're pagans. Who's Jesus so often angry with? He's angry with the religious people who claim to follow God, but who don't love people with God's love. Which is exactly what's happening here with Jonah. It's not that he's an unbeliever, right? It's not that he doesn't know God. It's that he doesn't want to do what God has for him to do, which, which is ultimately this act of love, to bring the word of the Lord to these evil, violent people. I mean, this is, this is God displaying his love. And so the scene ends with the men hurling Jonah into the sea at his request. He would rather die than do what God's told him to do, and this calms the storm, and we see the sailors kind of experience this conversion almost, right? What do they do? It says, the sailors made sacrifice and they took vows to the Lord. And before they even threw him over, they cried out to the Lord. Not, not their false gods. They, crawl, they called out to Yahweh, the text says. And, and they said, please forgive us for killing this guy. And so suddenly these guys are more faithful, faithful followers of Yahweh God than even Jonah is. Hmm. And so they sacrifice to him, they make vows to the Lord, and all the while the prophet, the man of the Lord, the one who comes bearing his word is like slowly sinking, you know, Titanic style down into the water. And then we get the final line of this chapter. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We're going to pick up there next week. Let's pray. Father, anytime I read through this book, um, It is just so clear that 
that one of the things you want to awaken within me is, is not only an ear to hear you, but, a, but an obedient heart. A heart that delights in doing the things that you've called it to do. Your word says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I pray, Father, that we would be people who would be pursuing wisdom. That we would be so concerned about your will and your agenda and your purposes for us and our lives. Your purposes for our resources, your purposes for our families, Father. That we would be so concerned about those things that, that it truly does change everything about how we make decisions, how we go about our days. Father, may we be a people who are biased towards yes when it comes to your call. May we be a people who desire to see everyone as being people that you care about. That, that you love the world even though we are all unlovable. And, and Father, forgive us if we find ourselves in a position of superiority where we're looking down our nose at other people as, as if they're people you shouldn't love or people that you should just wipe out. While making the mistake of not recognizing that we deserve that very thing ourselves. And yet you are a gracious God and a loving God. And your word tells us that it's not your desire that anybody would perish. Father, teach us what that kind of love looks like. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.